Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. The good guy coming last place. Last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. Pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. All right, welcome to Say Hello to the Bad Guy. I'm your host, Locke, and this is the podcast where we drink, smoke, and bullshit about the life of a historic criminal. Now we're talking outlaws and gangsters. We're not going to cover too many serial killers. That's just a little bit dark for me, and this ain't no true crime podcast. Honestly, you can't call this a history podcast because I'm no historian. I'm just a history fan that does some research and bullshits about it with his friends. So speaking of my friends, let me introduce you to my co-host. So first with us today, we got DC. What up, doe? Also with us today, we got the host of one of my favorite podcasts, uh, second time joining us on the show, Mr. DGMH, uh, Zach Tobacco. Cheers, cheers. Glad to be back. Before we get into our drinks, real quick, your podcast, Drinks with Great Minds in History, you want to go ahead and let everybody know a little bit about that for sure thanks for the opportunity to i'm not sure if last time was before the name change or not if it was still drinks with great men in history but drinks with great minds in history um uh, just kind of same old shit not that different from this show just a different topic covering the great minds of history the psychology behind them uh and then every month we square off two people uh the one for the feature for each month uh, against another person we've already covered on the show so, you know, we've done George Washington v. Alexander Hamilton, Hamilton v. Jefferson, you know, we just did Winston Churchill v. Joseph Stalin. So cover a range of cast, uh, cast of characters that just kind of loom large and just basically doing it for fun. And it's, it's a damn good time. So cheers. I think the big difference between my show and your show, we both like to have some drinks. We both like to talk about historical stuff. Kind of the difference is the people we cover. Mm-hmm. I cover the people that the guys you cover come to when someone needs to protect their yeah, docks or something. That's true. Yeah. Like <laughs> I covered Woodrow Wilson. Your guys would be right there for World War One on the docks, you know? But the I guess I always forget to talk about the drinking part because it's in the name. But yeah, just kick it back, doing a few shots and drinking a few beers along the way. And I don't know. I try not to open a fresh bottle of wine when I start an episode because well, <laughs> it never ends well for me. <laughs> It's fun to hear the uh, progression from educated historian to drunken Florida man. Yes, it does happen too, especially in the shots episodes. But now that I started recording my, uh, I do like a Patreon bonus episode in each one and they like got 20 minutes longer and we start carrying a lot less in that 20 minute bonus episode. And then we come back to the regular one. (laughs) I don't think it's just you. There's been many times after a, a podcast the next day, I'll text Locke like, yeah, I'm not sure how that came out, but uh, I think I was really drunk last night. <laughs> sometimes I'm not the, sure how much editing will be needed. So I, I hate editing, but it's also quite fun to do it sometimes because I'm like, what the fuck were we talking about? <laughs> so we'll go hit our drinks real quick. You want to start us off, DC? What do you got to drink today? Yeah, today I switched it up a little bit. I actually have whiskey lemonade. I didn't do the triple stout today only because I want to fall asleep directly after the podcast today. So <laughs> that's the only reason why. So I figured summertime whiskey lemonade. I haven't had a whiskey lemonade for a long, long time, but it, that's good shit. I always liked a whiskey lemonade more than a yeah. whiskey sours. It's, it's got a different, yes. really different flavor. Whiskey sours also always screws me up, you know, like. It's because it's those, day. uh. The amount of sugar in the bitters mm-hmm. and stuff like yeah, that is what really, really gets you the hangover. It's like sugar and carbonation are what kills you. That's the excuse yep. we all have made more than one time. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like you're uh, drinking one of our show's favorite. You want to go ahead and tell us what you're drinking? Oh, me? Yeah, Lagunitis. Is that one of the show's favorites? Yeah. yeah. I just discovered the other day, because I normally have it on draft, is the shit it says around the bottle and everything. It just cracks me. It's a little description. It's got like a little bio. I was going to go with a theme drink because on DGMH, you guys usually do like a theme drink. Whatever you're drinking kind of goes yeah. with the theme of the episode. But honestly, I couldn't find anything that went with the theme. So I went DGMH themed. So I got a, I got a Yangling Lager, oh. which DGMH co-host Luke... Yeah. Always informs me is America's oldest it's, brewery. It's brewed in America's America's oldest brewery in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Shout out to one wow. of my co-hosts, Luke Fresh. Yes, uh, that's that's true, and we don't get a dime for that. Uh, so welcome to the land of free <laughs> free advertising for you. 
I think we do quite a bit of that ourselves. <laughs> and Yingling better appreciate it because uh, it's not even distributed in Michigan, so I had to pick that up down in Ohio. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah, we get it. it. It's very finicky where it crosses. Like, it's in Florida, but it won't be in Michigan. You know, it won't. Yeah. It, it's like very, it's like sheets. Do you guys have sheets? Nope. Okay. Michigan is very that. deprived when it comes to alcohol. The The benefit is we have good alcohol made in Michigan, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's a lot of stuff that's not made in Michigan that we, I go other places that we just don't have it here or it's like very, very hard to find. Well, they, I remember, I mean, I, I guess you do all the time, but you guys have covered a lot of cool breweries on the show that sound great up in Michigan. And um, yeah, it makes me want to visit. I, I have a friend up at Grand Rapids, so I kind of want to fly up and check out the Michigan brewing team because that's my favorite thing to do. Um, for sure but no yeah you say that we do theme drinks on the show sometimes those things are fucking stretches man <laughs> i'll be like big Lemons. stretches uh italy this person you know sometimes sometimes they fit great the best was the lafayette episode i was like oh there's a drink called the lafayette and then this historian comes on just like i didn't know there was a drink called the lafayette. <laughs> me neither whatever well, so, and then when i'm done as a backup when i'm done with my yingling for uh dr sherry valensic i got a Great Lakes. Oh, boy. <laughs> so. Yes. You know, I was so disappointed. I just visited my hometown. Could not find a Great Lakes anywhere. Before we get started, I got to thank Sixfo Sueno for letting us use his music in the intro. You can follow him on Instagram. It's Sixfo, F-O-E. You can also follow Cancer. He lets us use his song in the mid-roll. You can follow him at Eyes Bleed Defiance on Instagram. While you're on Instagram, you can follow us at Bad Guy Podcast, both on Instagram and TikTok. And if you're having a hard time finding any of the links, you can just go to the website, badguypodcast.com, and you can click everything through there. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. And the bad guy we're covering today is Kai Su Ong. This ain't negotiation time. This is Scarface, final scene, fucking bazookas under each arm. Say hello to my little friend. Kai Su Ong. So we got Kai Su Ong. AKA Benny Ong, AKA Uncle Benny, AKA Uncle Seven. So Uncle Benny's what he's knows most known by. I'll probably usually refer to him as Uncle Benny and Bunny Benny Ong. That's how most people know him. But I always like to lead off with their true name. What I want to know is probably, you know, how long do you think he was in America before he dropped Kai Sui and said, you know what, just call me Benny. Fuck it. First week. <laughs> he was working I'm somewhere. Tell you the truth. I, 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 I don't know because. I bet he didn't even make it into America. Depending on when he came, uh, you know, they might have dropped it for him. My, my, it was my great great grandfather's named Paulo Tobacco, and they couldn't handle that and cut it to Paul. You know, <laughs> so every Kai, every Kai's... Paulo I know is Paul, mm-hmm. and yeah, I think you just understand. Hey, somebody says, hey, you know, what? you look like a John, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden your name is John. <laughs> <laughs> yep, 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 yep. I mean, the history behind that be Americanization, hands down. I mean, this is that's that's crucial to. I, I'm excited to find out when we're covering because I always try and pull stuff out of lock, and he doesn't like to give me details coming into this. <laughs> I don't want to sound like an idiot, you know. <laughs> I'm stingy with my info. He's stingy with it for sure. <laughs> Uncle Benny was born in 1907 to poor parents in a small vi- village in Canton, China. He was the seventh. I guess in their region of Canton, where they, your birthplace is an important thing. So that's why he was known as Uncle Seven by a lot of people for most of his life. Ah. So he was like the seventh in, like seventh in his family? Yeah, seventh of nine. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, cool. So at this time, there was a huge amount of Chinese immigration coming to America. And when he was 13 years old, his older brother, Sam immigrated to America and got a job in New York as a delivery driver. And Uncle Benny followed him in 1923 at 16 years old. So the Chinese immigration to America at that time, but there was uh, a lot of weird laws. So one of them was like the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm. So Chinese women weren't allowed to immigrate over. That's the first one, actually. What's that? That's the first one. There's two. There's one that says no women, and then there's one that outright bans it, right? Uh, yeah. So, well, early on, they were letting them come over because they were using the Chinese men for basically, you know, labor, put down the uh, train tracks, stuff like that. And and then eventually, like, you know what? 
we're all set Chinese wise. We're good. You guys can't come over no more. But as we see, some things are some stories are as old as time. That doesn't typically stop people from come, coming in anyways. So yeah, in 1923, he comes to America and he settles in Chinatown, New York, in Lower East Side of Manhattan, and he gets a job at a laundry working for two dollars a day. What was that? No, you, I'm sorry. You know I'm, I'm sorry. Two dollars a week. You know, I'm gonna ask. <laughs> <laughs> what does that equate to today? What 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 kind of money is that? Is that like twenty dollars a week today? What is that? It's not much. It's about sixty bucks. Sixty bucks. Wow. I mean, I know that even in the nineteen sixties, my grandmother, who is is not an Asian immigrant, uh, is um she was making three thousand dollars a year as a nurse starting out. You know, a year. Yeah. So I mean, I mean. There, it, I think it all depended on your socioeconomic status less than it's depended on, your, you know, your your gender, your, your origin, things like that. Sadly, there were no laws in place to protect that. Not long after being in America, his older brother, Sam, he gets sick of working his ass off for, you know, very little money. So not long after his stay, Sam leaves a le- legitimate job. And he begins working with the Hip Sing Tong, which is one of China's ta- Chinatown's largest criminal organizations. Not surprising. The shit they made these guys do. I mean, I don't know if or when you want me to bring in any any like history pieces there. But you brought up, you know, Chinese exclusion. And you're talking like in the 1850s when gold's discovered in California. You know, you've got massive amounts of people moving to California from all over the country. And, and then you've got massive amounts of Chinese immigrants as China is opening up, coming to the to the United States as well. And that's kind of what you're talking about. So much so that by 1882, not 30 years after the, the California gold rush, they completely shut down Chinese immigration 100%. First by cutting out women, then by cutting out everybody. I think education was one of the few things, and maybe religion, like if you were a Christian uh, or something like that, you could come over for. It, it's kind of amazing because it's the only law. The Chinese Exclusion Act is the only law to ever completely ban immigration from one solitary country, solely based on their ethnic background. Uh, and it didn't even apply to the quota systems in the, the period. It sounds like we're talking about today because they just were they were they were zero always none allowed uh, after 1882. It's, it's crazy. Um, but they primarily, I, I know, came over to work. They were brought over, like you said, to work on the railroad, the Transcontinental Railroad in the 1860s and uh, stuff like that, you know, from the from the California side. So that, that's pretty crazy. And like you said, they were, you know, Prasada Nagrata. They didn't want him over. And then what that led to. So how he was a member of the Hip Sing Tong. These Tongs, they were originally founded as community organizations formed to protect uh, communities from anti-Chinese prejudice, which there was a ton of. So after the Chinese Exclusion Act, they start shutting stuff down. Uh, the Chinese people that were currently in America started kind of gravitating towards their own little neighborhoods. The first of which being, because they were already here for the gold rush, San Francisco became one of the first big Chinatown areas. That's cool. And then Tong basically is kind of slang for like a community organization or social group. So yeah, they originally just started off similar to like what uh, the mafia did in Sicily. It was originally, you know, protect from outsiders and protect our neighborhood and they protect from anti-Chinese prejudice. They would work as labor organizations. They would work as banks. They would do uh, mediation and community disputes because they honestly couldn't even count on courts and police coming into the neighborhood. So they had to literally handle everything themselves. I think they were pretty much denied citizenship by some of these laws too. Naturalization wasn't really an option for them. They just kind of lived here as residents and workers and things like that. I don't know the hundred percent numbers, but you know, and Chinatown's always interesting because everybody knows Chinatown and, and everybody knows little Italy, but all immigrant communities had these things. Kind Deutschland, little Germany, you know, little Tokyo, all of these, all, you know, everywhere. Uh, they just, every immigrant community that came over had their own little area that they kind of self segregated to gal where they could be you know safe from outside i mean you know boss tweed he he mm-hmm. took over the irish kind of the areas of, of of new york city so yeah here in detroit we have it like hamtramck and del rey at one point those were areas that were like exclusively at first it was polish and then it turned into really any east europeans because you know because that's kind of how we roll we're like well polish hungarian same thing you know czechoslovak same thing. Just go to the go to the go to Hamtramck together. In the Cold War, it was like anybody on the other side of the curtain. You're you're going. <laughs> you're, you're... But just like anything, these organizations, these tongs, were eventually overtaken by the criminal element, who would then use that power to control the you know community and take advantage of them. And then they eventually would control all the vice too. So they'd work into 
prostitution, gambling, extortion, you know, all the, the classics, really. On your show, I love those the classics. <laughs> Best part about your show is the classics of prostitution, gun running, smuggling, <laughs> booze, all the, all the good stuff. You know, the hits. Everybody loves the hits. Yeah, the classics. So in San Francisco in the late 1800s, up until about the early 1900s, it was an area that was known as the Tong Wars. So all these individual different Tongs for these communities started vying for the criminal enterprises of each individual Chinatown. San Francisco had these huge 20-year Tong Wars, which eventually led to some of the Tongs leaving San Francisco and settling in New York. And that's where the Hip Sing Tongs comes from. So even though they're from Manhattan, Chinatown, it originated in San Francisco and it came east during the Tong Wars little like civil war i mean that's crazy like little like internal disputes and they call it like a war that's crazy well i mean i think you know anything once it goes on for 20 years that's basically is a war <laughs> 20 years is a long ass war for sure well and just something we won't get too into it but one of the things that i definitely think qualifies it as a war is uh one of their go-to methods of combat was middle of the street hatchet fights <laughs> okay yeah i would, I would say that's weapon. pretty warlike <laughs> interesting weapon of choice for sure yeah well guns weren't as common especially in an area of immigrants and basically unwanted they weren't trying to flood them with guns so they worked with what they had and you know big old 30 on 30 hatchet fights in the middle of chinatown I would have gotten really good at making and throwing knives. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can throw a hatchet, can't you? I mean, why, why the hell not? You, you, keep, you keep talking about these guys as like unwanted people. That's so true. You know, from the, from the 1800s and the 1900s, there's this group of people called the, uh, the Working Man's Party. And it's interesting because the ethnic hate towards Chinese immigrants in this period wasn't the initial reason why. It was all about the fact that there, the opportunity for labor by American-born people was being taken away by these Chinese, cheaper Chinese labor forces, uh, even Irish Americans and things like that. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's, it's a relevant thing to talk about for certain. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you're a history teacher, so you're big into it. But I mean, when I say history repeats itself, you know, the, the more I do this podcast, like we literally the same thing, just in circles, over and over and over again. Like, I said, South Park's never more right. You know, South Park's always, they took our jobs. That's the, the mentality that causes the problem. Well, you know the reason why it's always really easy to sell. The narratives that keep coming up are the narratives that are very easy to sell to a group of people so that you can get a desired result. Whether a desired result is going to war against somebody, banning somebody, banning something. There's a couple narratives they throw out there that work over and over and over again. That, that was easy it, it always come when it comes down to money and work and labor and that that's the easiest thing to sell in the world always so the hip sing tong comes from san francisco to new york in around 1904 and they immediately get to war with a another gang called the on long the hip sing and the on long upon setting up shop in new york chinatown then begin a second tong war that lasts about another 20 years wow. seems about the norm right you know 20 year tong war for some of these guys we're now We've now been hatchet fighting for 40 years. So that brings us up to about now. And Sam joins the hip sing tong, quickly works his way up. And then not long after, at 17 years old, his younger brother, Benny Ong, signs up with him and joins the hip sing tong. Now, when Benny joins, this is at the very tail end of the War of Four Tongs. So he actually comes in just at the end enough to get involved in enough hatchet fighting back alley shootouts to establish himself with like a fierce reputation as a killer and a loyal soldier at 17 got the reputation he needs to succeed put that on your resume kid benny known killer what's up (laughs) skilled with a hatchet not in the way you're thinking (laughs) as benny way as benny works his way up like i said he's known as a loyal soldier which gives him a leg up and he starts moving into different rackets he starts to control a lot of uh, the Chinatown extortion, prostitution, gambling, and then opium dealing. Which... He got into the good stuff. There's <laughs> one thing I could say is this is the first time we've ever covered anything during Prohibition era where bootlegging isn't even on the radar. <laughs> oh, wow. That's 
I mean, well, I mean, opium's, I guess, the next next best thing. They're like, oh, we're not even mad. We got some stuff that'll really fuck you up. Yeah. <laughs> we're, from, from experience, they, they know. Yeah. yeah if, we're, if we're already going illegal, we'll just go opium. Why would we want to mess around with whiskey, man? So Bedney was known for his quick temper. Sometimes if he lost at gambling, he would go out and rob somebody on the street and then come back in with more money and sit back down at the table and finish gambling. I like that. I like that. That's that's like that's great. I, that's the way I'm gonna start gambling that way. Just walk out, say, "Give me some money." I lost all. So what I heard is it's actually better to gamble with him than to be just a general person walking on the street. Because if you gamble with him and you win, you get to take your earnings. Because he's gonna go and rob somebody else that's not gambling to bring money back to the table for yeah, you to win that more. That would be dishonorable. <laughs> you, know, you can't rob the guy you lost to, or nobody will play with you. You just gotta go steal more money. That's good. there you go. It is a bit of a weird version of honor among thieves. Like, ah, oh, you took my money. That's okay. You can have it. I'm just gonna go steal more from somebody else. <laughs> I'll be back. Deal, I'll be right. Deal back. me in. I'm gonna skip one round, but deal me in after that. I'll be back. <laughs> you know, Benny's an up and rising superstar. He's doing good. And then in 1935, as he's working his way up through the ranks, Benny was arrested and charged and convicted of second degree murder for killing a gangster during a robbery in an illegal gambling den. That's a jump. I'm sorry. That's one thing that these people all do. <laughs> like, just, I'm gambling, selling opium, robbing people on the street. I killed somebody. All of a sudden, <laughs> well, I mean, you can only rob so many gangsters till one of them tries to yank their piece or do something and... A tussle breaks out, and next thing you know, it's a second-degree murder. You figure if you live in the underworld, you're, I mean, no matter what you do in the criminal world, you're only a couple steps away from a possible, you know, homicide or attempted murder. And just because, you know, your reputation always means something. So it only takes somebody to cross you, do something wrong, wrong place at the wrong time, which you're always in the wrong place. It just depends on if it's the wrong, wrong time or not. Well, and he might be at a point where he feels like, like at this point, I'm a Tong War vet. I've been at this for about a decade. You know what I mean? I don't got to take no shit from anybody. Decade in the Tong Wars. These things last 20 years. You're like still a rookie <laughs> by then. You're like still an apprenticeship. Benny Ong gets sentenced to 25 years in prison. And he's pissed, but he don't talk. He shuts up. He does his time. And Benny was released after 17 years in 1952. Wow. Okay. Sorry, I'm trying to do math. Hold on. I'm trying. To... <laughs> that's that's not bad. I mean, that's what just over half. So he yeah, would have been. Over half. He almost did the whole um, thing. Yeah. 17 out of 25. That's most yeah, of it. So he'd have been like thir- thirds. about 39 by now. So uh, 52, 1907. About 45. So okay. he went. In, so he went in in his 20s, and he just spent his whole life in jail. Yeah, 28. Gets out at 45. Now he came out, and he still. He was quiet. He didn't complain. He still had a reputation for being a loyal soldier. He was quoted at one point as saying that he wasted his whole youth, which he did. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that's even really a quote as much as just a fact. Like that is true. He did do that. But several, uh, a couple big things happened while he's in prison. So one, while he was locked up, his brother became the leader of the Tong. So his brother, who was also a rising star, is now in charge of the whole hip sing tong. Is this Sam? Because that's the only brother you kind of really touched on. Yeah, older Sam. brother Sam. Okay. So now Sam's running the whole thing, and he promises his little brother. He's like, "Look, you did your time. You know what I mean. You kept your mouth shut. I appreciate you. Respect you. I'm gonna take care of you. And you're done with the street shit. You don't got to worry about that stuff no more. So as soon as you get out, I'm gonna take care of you. But now the other big thing that changed during that time. So there was the Magnuson Act of 1943 that repealed the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, mm-hmm. and it allowed Chinese females to immigrate to America. And then there was also like the War Brides Act of 1946. So all this stuff kind of combined together while he's gone. He comes back, and now Chinatown used to be all dudes, mm. you know, and mostly young guys. And who commits all the crime? Young guys, yeah, yeah. you know? And uh, that's how you end up with, you know, 40-year Tong Wars and hatchet fights. You got a bunch of dudes with no moms and nobody to tell them what to do. That's like China now. China has entire villages that are just single men and their mothers because there's no women or, you know, there's just a bunch of men because they went through that period of the nasty policy for sure. 
so now when he gets out, Chinatown's got like a whole different look because now there's all these females and before there was barely any. And if, but now there's all these Asian females and their their moms and their sisters and there's real families in the community. It's not just a bunch of angry men. It's a, it's a real community. You know, it's a happening spot. It's families. It's a growing area. It's a growing economic power, a growing political power. So you, you brought, you know, just for those of you, your listeners that, you, you know, might not know, I mean, the only reason that they changed this policy was because of World War II. I mean, you said it happened in 1943, smack dab in the middle of that Magnuson Act. I mean, we've, we have been allies with China for about two years fighting against the Japanese. Uh, you know, how can you be allied with a country that you forbid from coming to your own? And at the same time, you've got posters hanging up in the street so that you can tell a Korean from a Japanese person from a Chinese person, you know, uh, and, and I mean, they're as racially profiling as you can possibly get on these war, uh, wartime posters, uh, Chinese immigrants taking over Japanese American homes when they were put in internment camps. But, you know, the one thing that happens is immigration actually picks up as a result of this lightning but they still base it on the existing quota systems from the 1920s. And they say, well, we established a quota for the Chinese immigrants, even though back then we weren't allowing any Chinese immigrants to come into the country. It's just like a opportunity of convenience. But yeah, I, I did forget that, but I did, I did read something like that. So if it wasn't for World War II, they still wouldn't have started bringing the, the that they, many females. They, they basically were just like, well, they are our allies. I guess we got to be nice. Well, and people forget it because it's such a brief hiccup between anti-immigration policy and the, the Red Scare and Red China and the, the Cold War. You know, I mean, they go from being our ally. They fight a civil war and we help them. Well, we failed to help them through that. It's still a relevant issue today. I mean, the Chinese government retreats to Taiwan, protected by the U.S. Navy. And, you know, Donald Trump a few years ago, I'm not trying to get political here, broke policy when he, you know, answered a phone call from the Taiwanese president because Taiwan is like a separate branch of the Chinese government. You know, that's right. re relevant, crazy stuff. Yeah, we did. Uh, so covering this series at some point between Taiwan, Hong Kong and China, like I almost could have threw you on every episode, like just to uh, <laughs> hey, hey, help me sort out this shit, man. This is <laughs> Real quick, Hong Kong. So I'm reading about Hong Kong and the history of it. Right. So like in the 1800s, Britain took over Hong Kong and it was under British control mm -hmm. until like 1930s. And then Japan took it over. Oh, did Which it fall? I, did it did it fall to Japan? I didn't. I I never really looked. Yeah, probably makes sense. I think yeah. it did. Yes, Hong Kong fell. Yeah, yeah. Japan took over Hong Kong for an extended period of time, and they kept it until after. Yeah, until after <laughs> World War II. And then I actually read that said after World War II, Japan handed it back over to the rightful owners, the British. That's Winston Churchill's mentality for you, though. He refused to give up the the, the colonies and. Um, Hong Kong is the last colony to be released uh, by the, you know, that's the, the most recent true colony. Macau before that by the Portuguese, Macau and China. It's the Vegas of Asia, you know? So. Well, yeah, that's so back to the rightful owners. Yes. Britain. <laughs> the, 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 oh, the British were like, thank you, good sir. <laughs> good day. So now he's back on the street and Benny's put in charge of the largest rackets and he does real well with them. So he takes over the gambling. He takes over some of the labor racketeering and, you know, he's a gangster's gangster. He's a smart guy, but they also say after he come out of prison, he was a little bit more even keel. Like it kind of took some of the violent edge off him. I think he just really didn't want to go back to prison. Not to mention, I think it happens with age in general. You know, you always hear the prison stories. You always hear about the wildest prison stories, be the newer guys or the younger guys. And when you're older, it's like when you've seen so much and you've seen how the smallest thing can, you know, take someone's life or whatever else, it calms you down a bit, you know, to where it's like, is it really worth it to have this conversation? You know what I mean? So I think that plays a part also. So you're talking prison because, see, I was thinking back to my hatchet wielding days in my 20s where I just was <laughs> like him and I was just like... You know, now that I'm in my 30s, I've just, I've stopped carrying hatches with me everywhere I go. Exactly. Um, you know, I still rob people if I lose all my money at a casino, but. I, I just I, don't have that, I don't have that same itch for a hatchet fight that I used yeah, to. Yeah, you, know, you know, you never lose it all. It's always going to be a part of you. It's just how often you, you know, you want to bring it out. And so, like you said, okay, I'm not 
running around in the middle of the street throwing hatches. But yeah, I mean, if I'm a little short on change, I'm walking down the street, I see somebody not paying attention. I might just bump them over the head a little bit, take yeah. a wallet, you know, no harm, no foul. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, hatchet's going to be harder to use. Arthritis starts to set in, you know. <laughs> right. I can't even lift anymore without, like, my uh, my arm beans were for a week, you know. <laughs> exactly. So as he grows his operations, he starts to put a lot more focus on portraying the organization as legitimate businessmen and community leaders as much as a criminal operation. So he starts to kind of, you know, put them on this different track, more of a uh, organized criminal. I mean, they were always organized, but a little bit more straight laced, a little bit more uh, business forward. Now, not long after this, and you kind of hit it to it with the, uh, you know, these changes in our relationship, you know, post-World War II, World War II, they're our buddies. Post-World War II, they're communists. Don't like that. No, no, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I'll so, be fair, I don't like communists, period. But yes, I agree with you. The American public did not like communists. Yes. There, there was like a hard switch. So Chinatown had just settled down. It became this family area. Like, okay, our women could come here. Everything's good. But then, you know, all this, uh, we have all the stuff that breaks out like all over the world. And then in the late 60s and early 70s, the dynamic changes in Chinatown again, as all the immigrants to that point had primarily been Cantonese. Hmm. Like almost all of the American immigrant, almost all the Chinese immigrants in America had almost all been Cantonese. They all came from the same villages. They spoke the same language. A lot of time, that's how they gravitated towards those Tongs, because that was the people they were associated with back home. Now they started getting a lot of Chinese immigrants from Taiwan and Hong Kong. And then they also started getting immigrants in that were Mandarin speaking. Mm. You know, to us, oh, yeah, it's more Chinese people. But in Chinatown, this was a huge switch in demographic. Like, we don't know nothing about Hong Kong. We don't know Taiwan. These people speak different languages. Like, I don't know that Mandarin and Cantonese are so similar that they just naturally speak both. I, I mean, I think that they're extreme. Maybe maybe Chinese person, but like if, if we were going to learn it, we would pick one or the other. We wouldn't leave with the knowledge of both. Well, and, and, well, and that's what made it a, pro- a problem is like all of a sudden that they, they don't speak the same language. Things are confusing. But you still end up in Chinatown. So get to Chinatown and figure it out amongst yourselves. But in addition to that... It's your only option, and Americans are forcing it, too. Right. Well, in addition to that, we started getting people from other Asian countries, like uh, Vietnam and Cambodia, also. Because, you know, you had, like, the Khmer Rouge, you had the Vietnam War. So then you get all these refugees coming from these countries, too. Also, not Chinese, but... (laughs) You guys go. You guys are going to Chinatown. Going to Chinatown. <laughs> you know, and now, and the, you know, and these Cantonese guys are like, "Look, we didn't like the mandarins. What is a Vietnam? <laughs> like, this is not our. This is different." But so now you have all these people, and the demographic, like the dynamic of Chinatown, starts to switch back to how it used to be, where now you have all these young guys from war-torn countries again, and they're coming to Chinatown, where it's not like coming to settle in and they're going to help you get a job. You know what I mean? You're in a different place and you speak a different language and these guys are uncomfortable. So this led to a generation of disenfranchised youth that took to the streets and formed gangs. Chinatown became swamped street gangs. Now, when we say street gangs, so this is like a uh, mid seventies. We're going to go into like the early eighties. Oh, here's a, I forgot. I could show you this one. These are pictures of the hip sing tong. So this is like 1903. This is like 1933. In this first picture, they are. A lot of these just really look like gangsters as we know it, just of a different ethnicity. Like, this looks like just a bunch of dudes at a social club reading papers and hanging out. I was just saying in the in the arrest photo, they look really young. And yeah, you all are right. By, you know, 30 years later, they've definitely fit the profile now of what an American gangster would be, which became really universal. The suit, the hat, you know, that, that kind of look. Getting so, the shoes shine. I mean, yeah, class. Well, but then now we get into the seventies and eighties and now we start getting hit with uh, the flying dragons and the white Eagles and the ghost shadows. And when I say street gangs, it's not what we traditionally see now, which is like young teenagers. They were typically like older teenagers to early thirties. And they were just kind of these people that were flung from all over the world and landed in Manhattan's Chinatown. And they were like, well, I don't know. Maybe we should start a gang or something, kind of protect ourselves. Get some hatchets. (laughs) Full circle. Again, same thing. Yep. Repeating itself. 
So now the Tongs are looking at, well, look, we've been fighting each other for a long time, but now we got to take to the street and kill all these kids. Like, man, this is, I honestly think a lot of them were like, is this even a fight that we want to take? And uh, the hip sing was kind of one of the leaners of it. A lot of people say it was probably Uncle Benny's idea, but what they do is they reach out to these street gangs and they're kind of like, look, this is our territory. We're going to allow you to operate here, but in order to operate, you have to affiliate with one of the Tongs. You still see that type of philosophy today in gang and criminal activities, you know, where somebody's on the come up and it's like, we could crush everything, but if they got something good going, you know, pick, come under our umbrella, give us a piece of the pot pie and, you know, we'd let you, uh, allow you to keep operating and we give you some extra added protection. It's economical. It's extortion, right? I mean, that's what it, it is. is. GDP yeah. extortion. <laughs> we can either prostitute, we can either take you down and prostitute you or extort you. So you... <laughs> yeah, so the Tongs, they bring on the street gangs as street level branches of their organizations and use them to assist them in moving away from their criminal image. So the hip saying brought in the largest Chinatown street gang, a group called the Flying Dragons. And they became their street affiliate. And the On Long brought on a group called the Ghost Shadows. And they officially moved towards, like, no, we're just a business. We're a community organization. But you fuck around and make me call the Flying Dragons, and, and we'll see what happens. But now, now they each have their own weapons independent of each other. And I don't know if it's just kind of like... Uh, these tongs wanting to try out their play with their new toy or something, but they basically fired up a war between the flying dragons and the ghost shadows, which continued the tong wars under the guise of rival street gangs for basically another 20 years. It's always 20 years. Had to be. I knew it was going to be 20 years before you even said it. They sit down at a table and say, for 20 years, we will fight another tong war. In 1974, Sam passed away and Benny took over as the boss of the hip sing tong. Like 64 or something like that, right? Yeah, he would be 67. Oh, that's fucking embarrassing. I thought 67. I... Hey, you're a history professor, not a math teacher, okay? I've been, I've been doing that math for like five minutes trying to figure that out, and I still fucked it up. <laughs> Benny became known as the godfather of Chinatown, and he'd often be seen just hanging out on Pell Street. That's where he'd go. He'd get his coffee, he'd hang out. He lived there, he had a modest house, and he owned his own owned his own businesses. He's been I've seen him called the uh the godfather of Chinatown. And he literally lived right on Pell Street, walked up and down the street. He did he probably committed next to no crimes once he took over that organization. In reality, <laughs> that seems to be how it works. Everybody else commits the crimes. All right. What we're gonna do, we're gonna take a real quick smoke break, refill our drinks, and we'll be back in a minute. Corroded as soon as it was awarded. Celebrations were thwarted before they could be supported. Rolling th- 
Almost time to run, put on your army helmets now. You're running toward the sun with all your guns, defenses down. Flashes everywhere, the lights create an atmosphere. Water in your lungs, you pray for death, but life is here. You're about to die, face it, you're about to die. Zero sand in your glass, fuck it, you can't even cry. Put a dagger to your neck, just to keep yourself in check. Put a dagger to your neck, just to keep yourself in check. Everybody grab a side as you fight to stay alive. Dancing on a hand grenade so you can die and they survive. Silver bullets in the sky, dropping seven second death. Scattering the children, run, rub until there's nothing left. Ashes in the water, sons and daughters hold their flags up high. Wallow in the harbor as the military tanks arrive. Penetrate the border with disorder like an animal. Every war is the honor of turning kings into cannibals. All right, we're back. So when we left off, Uncle Benny had taken over as basically the godfather, the boss of bosses of all the Tongs over Chinatown. Now, the exact year that he took over as boss, 1974, he gets arrested and convicted of bribing immigration officials and sentenced to eight years. It's not how you want your reign to start. But he ends up getting released after one year after convincing the court that that he had failing health and that he was an integral part of the community. So they're like, eh, I don't know, he kind of looks like a nice old dude. Let's let him out. You think about it, and you think about what he said he tried to put together, or at least the front of what he was putting together. I believe that you could try and convince the court that, because now you can show the organization that you're over is doing some great things for the community. Now, I don't know about those new young guys that are, like, going to war and everything, but us, no, we're fine. So he gets back out. He's back on the street. In 1980, he meets a guy named Herbert Liu. Now, Herbert Liu was an immigrant from Hong Kong. He was uh, educated, intelligent, great business mind. They hit it off real good. And Uncle Benny has him initiated as a member of the Tong. And this guy becomes a rising star. And he's a huge earner. He's making a bunch of money. Uh, but not long after that, he kind of gets sick of Benny. He starts saying he doesn't like his old cool, old school business style. Two, a couple specific things. Uh, Uncle Benny told him to wipe off a debt for uh, like an Italian mobster that they had worked with. And he told him to uh, wipe some debt for him. And then the guy wanted to do an investment that Uncle Benny said no to. And he just was like, you know what? This guy's too old school. I don't like it. He was quoted as saying Benny was stuck in the 30s. And Herbert branched off and started his own tong called the Freemasons Association and began recruiting street-level gangsters from potential Flying Dragons members. That's the worst gang name ever. What are you, George fucking Washington? Let's start a gang, the Freemasons. This will be great. <laughs> well, it, and I, when I checked it, it is correct. That is right. That's exactly what they called themselves. But you have to really dig through that, because when you Google Freemasons anything, there's oh, so that's... much other shit that comes up from this, besides this third you know, new flash in the pan tong from Chinatown in 1980s and shit. Poor Uncle Benny stuck in the 30s, the hatchet days. I tell you, I want to be stuck in the hatchet days. They were very He begins starting his own gambling dens. And like I said, he's recruiting members from the Flying Dragons. So he didn't even try and start his own gang. He's like, I'm going to start my own own tong. Like, fuck this shit. Uncle Benny decided he had broke his hip-sing oath in order to hit on any Freemason gangsters. I thought you said he broke his hip. I'm not gonna lie. I didn't say that too. <laughs> Uncle Benny broke his hip. He decided to call it quits. No, he decides to <laughs> completely pivoted the story for me. Sorry. So he decides to do what? I'm gonna go out and let me say he's gonna kill somebody. Um. Yeah. He issued hits on all uh, open hit contracts on any free Freemason gang members. I did say he broke his hip. I said he had broke his hip. 
saying oath. But yeah. how many, I want to know what I want to know is how many Freemasons just died because of this order. <laughs> the lodge number 52 in New York City got hit hard that day. Well, it wrapped up soon enough. I mean, after a few killings um, in December of 1982, while at a meeting, a group of flying dragons came in and opened fire on the Freemason gang, shooting 11 and killing three. After this, even most of the Freemason gangsters were kind of like, oh, man, I don't know. Uh, we might have been in over our head here and shit. So, so the fourth Tong War lasted 20 minutes, not 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting better at it. The 20-year rule. So Herbert Liu was arrested and offered protection from the police. So they said, hey, if you want to snitch, we'll protect you from Uncle Benny. And Herbert Liu refused. And he went back to Chinatown and apologized to Uncle Benny and begged for forgiveness and forsook any retribution for the murders to his gang. Uh, Benny accepted and took control of the remaining Freemasons in their rackets and just absorbed them into their gang. He spared them? Yep. Mm. What's that mean? Spared. Oh, spared them. Oh, yeah. oh, I thought he said speared them. I'm like, oh, my, <laughs> guys yep, they, they turned around and he fucking stabbed him in the back. <laughs> <He speared them. laughs> Uncle Benny, <laughs> fuck you, Herbert. I don't have a hatchet, but I have a, a spear. <laughs> a spear. Benny kills Herbert. I, I just, there's just something about, you know, I always teach uh, Korematsu v. the U.S., that's the Japanese internment Supreme Court case. Okay. And they're like, the kids are like, who's Korematsu? I was like, his name's Fred. And they're like, his name's Fred? And it's just the name, the Americanized names that get chosen are so like, so like 1950s American in 1995. Like, I just don't understand. Ben Why? and Herbert. The yes. Two guys from Hong Kong and from Canton. Ben Speared Herbert. Now, just to be clear. Sorry, I confuse anybody. Ben, Uncle Benny spared Herbert. And Herbert is still alive. Well, maybe not today. <laughs> Herbert was still alive. <laughs> Hip Sing Tong had their, made their biggest cash cow in 1983. A guy named Machine Gun Johnny Ang took control of the Flying Dragons. And he had a bunch of Asian connections in Hong Kong. He became one of the leading suppliers of China white heroin to America. And uh, they brought in millions of dollars a year under the uh, Machine Gun Johnny Ang, who sometimes they also called Onion Head. Better name. It's a better name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they started bringing in millions of dollars. Now, one thing I will say about Uncle Benny is he seemed pretty good about taking that money when he made a bunch of money. He still took care of his business and did, you know, the classics and shit. But he always he did start to slowly focus more on the Hipsing Association. So at some point, once they had to fly in dragons, they took the tong off. So like if you look, they have it's all Hipsing Association. They have the Hipsing Credit Union, Hipsing uh labor organizations and shit like that so he did start putting that money back kind into the neighborhood that's Um, usually the way it works i mean with gangs and you know even if you look at just your regular businessman that does any and everything to build his you know empire and then you know by the time it's almost time to check out all of that money goes back into building community and building libraries and putting their name on everything. And- Everybody wants to secure their legacy. My favorite example of that is John D. Rockefeller and uh, Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. They started getting in this battle. Like they had, they had both so much money that it didn't matter who won at this point. So they said, you know what? We got to, we got to put our name on shit before we die. Rockefeller yep. center, Carnegie hall. I mean, you, it's everywhere. You know, you, you, every major city, you know, on the West Co- or East Coast has, has yeah. that stamp on it, you know, in some places. It's crazy. Benny's next major rival was also a former associate. He was a Vietnamese immigrant named David Tai, who was a former Flying Dragons member. Uh, the problem with David Tai was he realized he's a good gangster, he's a good earner, but he realized real early on that his Due to his Vietnamese heritage, he could never move above like low standing in the Flying Dragon organization. So um, he even when he was with the Flying Dragons, they made him just start his own branch of Vietnamese Flying Dragons. They're like, all right, we need you with us, but you can't really be part of the gang. So just work with other Vietnamese guys. You do your own thing, but you're part of us because it's Chinatown and everybody's got to work for somebody. David Ty did it for a while, but by 1987, he realizes he's not going to be able to move up in this organization and he had built a huge counterfeit watch operation. And he decided to break off 
and he started his own gang of disenfranchised Vietnamese immigrants called the BTK for Born to Kill. Hey, first cool name. Oh. <laughs> I'm like hooked on this mugshot that we're looking at. It says NYCPD, and I didn't know that they used. I'm wondering like when they switched to just NYPD. You know, I mean, oh, you, yeah. ne- you never you never see that in NYCPD. I mean, it's called the New York City Police Department, but I can't even. I mean, just quick scan. I can't seem to find when it was called that. Maybe I wonder if it's still in mugshots today. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, that is funny. I never thought I never noticed that either. Now I'm going to start double checking that on like my a, mugshots. I'm like a big SVU fan, you know. <laughs> so NYPD. So BTK became a rise in force, uh, and they were known for their violence. They took over Canal Street. They would kill people out in the open on the street. They were they kind of thought they had an attitude that they were like, well, we're not Chinese, we're Vietnamese, so we don't gotta follow the rules. We do whatever the fuck we want. This is our neighborhood now, too. You know what I mean? We live here. And they took Canal Street. That Canal Street's the biggest merchant street in Chinatown. It's like the big uh like souvenir Chinatown is mm-hmm. Canal Street. So they're just uh they're taking over rackets, they're doing whatever the fuck they want, they're killing people on the streets. It becomes a huge problem. But Uncle Benny always kind of like david ty uh, i think he probably could relate like it's it's his story just a different country right so he's probably thinking well i get it you're, you're angry it's cool i understand Put and uh down just calm down we'll figure this out so in 1990 uncle benny called for a sit down with david ty to settle the disputes and end the violence and uh david ty stood him up disrespectful so, here comes the hatchet 80 year old uncle benny's coming out hatchet straw <laughs> He had David Ty's right-hand man, a guy named Ving Vu, gunned down on a street corner. And then when the BTK showed up for his funeral, he had their funeral shot uh, shot up. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, he'll probably rethink uh, (laughs) not doing that sit-down. You better do like the other guy and uh, actually go and beg for his forgiveness and try and get his life spared. I don't know. I just, you know, you can't shoot up a funeral. I, I guess my gold standard, and I don't know about you guys, it's, it's the Italian mobsters, and that shit just doesn't doesn't fly with me, the shooting up a funeral. At first they killed Ving Vu. They might not have shot it up, but BTK, they had his funeral up and down the streets of Chinatown for three oh. days. They just walk, they would walk traded <laughs> up and down the streets. Yeah. I, I didn't bring the picture yeah. for this one. I only had so many, but it's in one of the other episodes from the series. They were carrying around a banner that said BTK Canal Boys. Yeah, that, they're asking for it then. And that's when Uncle Benny was like, all right, shoot up the funeral then. But David Ty, they didn't fold like the uh, Freemasons, and they duked it out with uh, the Flying Dragons and the Hip Sing Tong for two years. Not 20, but we always got to keep the two in there somewhere. Always. Until uh, 1992 when David Ty and most of his top guys were arrested. And this basically just crushed the BTK. So... Even though he technically couldn't beat David Ty, he outlasted him, basically. Sounds like a win to me. Yeah, yep, yep, we'll take that. After the BTK War, Benny controlled Chinatown peacefully. He began working closer with the community. He started focusing way more on labor organizations and Chinese immigration groups. And uh, he worked closely with businesses and local politics. Um, One of his things was he was anti-communist. But there was a lot of Chinese people that were newer immigrants that were more pro-communist. And one of the things, and they would always fight and bicker. And uh, he was a big proponent of like, hey, how about we don't even talk about China politics? Let's focus on America politics uh, and see what we could do to get out of Chinatown. And a lot of them were like, ah, you know what? That makes sense. Let's do that. Got to come together on the common goal. In August 1994, Uncle Benny passed away from prostate cancer. He received the largest funeral in the history of Chinatown, attended by thousands from all over the world. It included 120 limousines, five Cadillacs to carry his flowers, and he was buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn. That's still less than the number of carriages to carry Frankie Yale's flowers. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> still a far second, but I just figured we couldn't have you on the podcast without doing another big funeral. Buried with his hatchet, I hope. So he had been married twice. His first wife passed away, and then he remarried a Hong Kong actress. Um, he had a bunch of kids. I couldn't find a number on it. He worked hard to keep like his private life separate, but he had a lot of grandkids and stuff. So he's a, for a gangster. He's kind of a regular dude, too. But that's the story of Benny Ong. So say goodnight to the bad guy. Go on. 
Before you guys see a picture, do you have any guess? If we were going to cast a movie about Benny Ong, who would you cast to play him? I mean, what's the movie? Can I get some parameters of the movie? Is it is it Uncle Benny in jail? Is it Uncle Uncle Benny with a hatchet? Is it Uncle Benny versus the Freemasons? I just I just don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's your choice. You could do a uh, fucking uh, a life log. Jeez, uh. I don't know. What are you thinking, DC? I have to go with Hans in um, Too Fast, Too Furious. Wait, what? What? what which one was it? The, yeah, no. Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Was that the one when he first appeared, Hans? Where, uh, you know, he had the American kid that got sent over there. Told him, hey, there's a guy in there with a paw. He's got my money. Go get it. So I think Hans was a um, was a great character in the underworld, in particular in that episode or that, you know, particular movie that I think would greatly represent kind of that I don't know, tear of self being a part of a game, also wanting to kind of do your own thing and eventually, you know, wanting to take over. I went with, so the actor's name is Sung Kang. And yeah, he played what Han. You said. He, <laughs> so he, played, he, he played Han in Too Fast, Too Furious, but he also was in Fast Five. So when they put them all together with Tyrese and stuff, yeah. he was back in. So he was in a couple episodes. Yeah. Until Jason Statham killed him. But I actually had Sun Kang also because of this. My niece was over recently and was watching some little kids movie mm-hmm. and he was playing like an old superhero guy. Okay. And I was like, man, that old dude looks like Han. And then I ended up Googling <laughs> it and it turned out to be him. It's just, I guess, Too Fast, Too Furious is like, you know what I mean? 15 years old now. And now he's yeah. like an older dude. But I just think he's at an age in the middle where you know, now with Avengers and shit, he could kind of play both sides. You could age him up to do the end stuff, but he could still kind of do like some of the action part in the middle. Yeah, I got to tell you, I couldn't think of a single Chinese actor, but I thought of this one guy that I thought would be great for young Benny, like hatchet hurling in his 20s, Benny. And it was uh, the guy from The Good Place. But it turns out that Manny Jacinto is a Filipino-Canadian actor. So that would be, <laughs> that would make for a strange placement. But I, I just, I don't know why that came to mind. He like acts like a, he's like a Buddhist monk in the show. I just, I don't know. Whatever. I'm the asshole, I guess. Take well, that. we do. We've touched on that quite a bit. It's like, uh, <laughs> we Lou talked Diamond about Phillips. the younger, yeah, Lou Diamond Phillips and the young gun. <laughs> I mean, you look at De Niro, I mean, so many things and it really just depends on if the person kind of fits the part. You right. know, I just don't think most Lou people Diamond- would really know the difference. Lou Diamond Phillips played a Mexican dude in every movie he played. He was ever yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here's some pictures of Uncle Benny. I got a I got a pretty long range. So this is uh 1935. So this will be where he went to prison the first time. Not even close. That's when he first got arrested. Yeah. So this is 1935. So he looks like an old man. He'd only been 28 wow. here. Yeah. He. Wow. He's, not even, he's not even 30 in that picture. He looks like he's 55. Yeah. It's a game I, I, changer. I'm going to, you know how you always had the uh, the baseball scandals with um, people from Asia and the Dominican Republic coming over here and they're really 10 years older. Yeah. I'm going to call BS on this age thing with him. <laughs> it's no way he's in his 20s or 30s in this picture. He's at least 40 plus. This is an old man neck right here. Yeah, yes. what's that shit called? Yes. Where they get the gobbler type thing? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. It takes a lot of years to get that. Even if you're overweight, you don't get that look. It Wait, takes some years to get Can that. you go back to that slide for one second? Just pop back to that picture real quick. Dude, the mugshot said NYC police. And now I am fascinated with oh. the progression of the mugshot name for the... Now this <laughs> looks exactly the same. How old do we see in this picture? This would have been older. This is like the 70s. He looks the same. I would say so, the big difference is the hair on this one. In the mole. So, what, <laughs> this is, so this is what I think. He looked old young, but he held it for a long time. There's something to say about that. You know, those people who lie about their age by five years. He just lied by 50. Oh, he's old mm-hmm. there. Yeah, he's definitely old here. Now, this is, uh, yeah, that's his second wife, I believe. He got a young one because she looks a lot younger than he is. No, she's actually older than him. She just held up. Just like. (laughs) (laughs) She 
wife used to always. Well, you remember, <laughs> she was born. You like remember, his second wife was an actress and stuff. So yeah, once by then, his wife had died. He was a widower. Probably was old, old gangster. I was like, ah, I'm gonna yeah, find a young, go young, a young actress. I mean, I, it can't be a coincidence that every single gangster we've ever covered, second wife, is considerably younger. No, no, that's just yeah. I think that's pretty much the way to do it. <laughs> All right. Zach said he's not touching that. One. <laughs> I'm happily married. So we gotta. So now we gotta do the DefCon scale. Standard DefCon scale is five to one. Five being the lowest, one being on being the highest. On the bad guy podcast, there's no good guys. So five would be Lee Murray, who's your crack dealing, drug dealing, bank robber. And one is the Purple Gang, who's got multiple gang wars, multiple massacres, and they're killing people on the streets. So on a scale of Lee Murray to the Purple Gang, where would you rate Benny Ong? I, I mean, I had thoughts, you know, like I got to give him a couple bonus points here for the hatchet thing. I mean, that's just cool. I really appreciate the fact that he just walked out and robbed some random passerby in the street to gamble with their money after he lost. That doesn't necessarily put him in the upper, you know, peak of the, the DEFCOM scale, but th- then you brought up that Purple Gang thing and how they had multiple wars and... You know, Benny had his wars. Benny was part of wars. He led wars. He started wars and he ended wars. And whether it's the first, second, or third Tong War, or the, uh, <laughs> or the 20 Days Tong War, or the 20 Seconds Tong War, or the Great War with the Freemasons, he had a lot of conflicts. So I'm going to put him right up. I, I was putting him at a four but or a three, but I'm putting him at a two. I, I am. It just, you know, by association at least. I agree exactly what Zach said. Um, I was trying to think of the number and really I was looking at between a two and a one. And this is what made this one difficult. If you're just looking at him, it seems closer to a three or four. But the problem is he became a shot caller once he got out of jail. So even if you're not the person there doing everything, you're basically calling out hits on people and people are dying. So all of those dramatically, those bodies, that blood is on your hands. Mm -hmm. So I was tearing between a a two and a one because we don't really have the great numbers, like where we can account for each one. I fall, I lean more toward a two, like you said, Zach, but I think with more information, I think he could easily, especially over the duration, Mm -hmm. how long he was a leader, he can easily slide into a one for me. And he just died, right? He didn't get killed. Yeah. Prostate that's cancer. Prostate cancer. Yeah. In the gang world, that's something too. I agree. So I was going to have him around a three because body count wise, but I think I'm in sales. We always try and use our prospects words against them. And you kind of did it with me where, fuck, I did say multiple wars. And uh, <laughs> that is right in my spiel. And I said that. And uh, I have to throw that in there because he did go through a lot of wars. And this is something me and DC have issues. Like we talk about a lot is, when you look at this long body of work, we know he got convicted of murder once, but you can't tell me that there's not a couple more in the middle of these hatchet fights and stuff. And same thing. When you say, Hey, go shoot 11 guys and three of them die. You didn't do that, but you kind of did that. Yeah. And dragons, ghosts, Freemasons. I mean, I just, it was like compared to the last time I was on another episodes that I've listened to just, it was war after war, after war, after war. And I wouldn't have gone to until you said that you're right though. I did pick that out. So, yeah, I would went three, but we'll go MMA rules. that make it a majority decision. DEFCON 2. Take it to DEFCON 2. You heard that, gentlemen. DEFCON 2. <laughs> All right. Nice. Well, thanks for joining me today, guys. Before we wrap it up, Zach, you want to tell them, like, your Instagram, your, you know, any yeah. social medias or anything? Yeah, Instagram. It's uh, drinkswithgreatminds underscore podcast or just on facebook drinks with great minds in history podcast uh, you also got a twitter dgmh uh, podcast it's all basically around the same theme uh facebook's probably where i'm most active just because with history that seems to be where it's at uh a little bit better but i'm active on instagram and everything like that and uh, check out the show we'll be covering what uh abe lincoln in april but this is airing in may so that's useless we covered abe lincoln in april uh <laughs> hope you enjoyed the show it was uh, great you should check yeah, it out I'm it was, it was fantastic <laughs> i really love the research i haven't done on abe lincoln yet and uh <laughs> i guess in may we'll be covering john marshall and then after that it's thurgood marshall going down a legal little bit of a legal legal pathway so 
you know, nice. a little bit of psychology, a little bit of history. Hope you guys will check it out and cheers. Thanks for having me back on. Thanks for coming back on. And yeah, check out the podcast. It's a great show. It comes out on every Friday. It's a TGIF. Yes, TGIF, DGMH. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining me. This is Say Hello to the Bad Guy. Thanks for coming. And thanks for listening. To the bad guy, bad guy. the good guy coming last place. Smell that dope when I pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. Say hello to the bad guy. To be dad, spent my birthdays in the trap. We had to work with what we had. She been working on a raise while trying to raise me like a man. Plus, my daddy in the box and all my cousins in the cam. And I don't need a hundred friends. I just want a hundred bands, a hundred jokes, a hundred scams. Hey, hey. So, out of money, grabbed a hundred hams. So, out of money, grabbed a bunch of And bands. I ain't wanna fall victim to that system or the business. Fuck a judge with a grudge. I'm blowing crud for my mental life. And I still keep it on me, run into your big homie, first you meet your dead homie, yeah. yeah. Say hello to the bad guy, bad guy. the good guy coming last place. Last place. You smell that dope when I pass by, pass by. Oh. I like my money at a fast pace. And her ass fake And she in love with the bad guy But bad bitches never act right She act up until that bag flies I did a turn around at one night Say hello to the bad guy The good guy come in last place You smell that dope when I pass by